You're listening to Food Integrity Now with your host, Carol Gravey. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Food Integrity Now. I'm Carol Gravey, and I'm your host. Today, we're going to be speaking with Nicolette Hahn Nyman. Nicolette previously served as senior attorney for the Waterkeeper Alliance under Robert F. Kennedy Jr., running its campaign to reform the industrialized production of livestock and poultry. In recent years, she has gained a national reputation as an advocate for sustainable food production and improved farm animal welfare. She has been featured in Time Magazine, O Magazine, Paleo Magazines, and many other publications, and has appeared on the PBS News, The Dr. Oz Show, The Diane Rehm Show, among others. Today, we're going to be speaking with Nicolette about her book, Defending Beef, The Ecological and Nutritional Case for Meat. Nicolette, welcome to Food Integrity Now. Oh, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I'm really excited to dive into your book, Defending Beef. But first, uh, I found your personal story very interesting. And back in the 80s, you were a biology major and you believed no beef is good beef. (laughs) That's right. And so take us back to that time and your thought process back then. Yeah, well, I was one of those kids that grew up, uh, you know, in the 70s and, you know, early 80s, kind of spending a lot of time outdoors and was super interested in nature and wildlife. And I was always interested in, you know, sort of environmental causes, even as a kid. Um, And I went to college and majored in biology. And I sort of had it in the back of my mind that I would probably work on environmental issues at some point, but I didn't, you know, didn't have a clear picture of how that would happen. Um, And I remember very distinctly my freshman year of college, I was involved in the environmental um, group at the campus, uh, Kalamazoo College, where I went to school. And there was just a lot of talk about meat and meat being bad for the environment. And I remember seeing a pamphlet from the Sierra Club saying beef is, you know, a leading cause of deforestation in the Amazon and so forth. And that, that really kind of pushed me over the edge, feeling like, you know, I'm a, I'm a good environmental citizen. I really shouldn't be eating meat and especially beef. So I stopped eating beef at that time, the freshman year of college. And then I continued being vegetarian for, well, for several decades after that. My views changed quite a bit over time, though, as I learned more and, you know, worked on the issue of agriculture and livestock production as an environmental lawyer. Okay, we're going to dive into that in a few minutes, but um, you also were an environmental attorney for the Waterkeeper Alliance under Bobby Kennedy Jr. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that may have altered your views on the meat industry? Yeah, well, I was uh, originally hired by Bobby Kennedy um, just to be kind of an attorney. The position was senior attorney for the Waterkeeper Alliance. And I had already been practicing. I had first been a prosecuting attorney, and then I worked for a law firm for several years. And then I was um, actually worked for National Wildlife Federation. And from there, I was hired by Bobby Kennedy to work for Waterkeeper. And originally, you know, of course, the focus is on water pollution, water quality. 
and really on protecting particular bodies of water and getting, you know, sort of local citizens motivated to work to protect, you know, that bay or river or lake. And, um, but I'd been at Waterkeeper for a few weeks and uh, Bobby approached me with the idea of working, um, focusing my time entirely on the question of pollution from the livestock and poultry industry. And I remember, you know, and he wanted me to do this because this was um, kind of the biggest issue he was seeing out there that was really a pr huge problem for water quality, but wasn't really being addressed by, you know, the government or other big environmental groups. So it seemed like there was a real need there. But I remember very distinctly when he first talked to me about it, I thought, oh man, this means focusing, you know, like full-time on manure. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, wow. <laughs> that doesn't sound very, you know, glamorous. Uh, but what, you know, Bobby was very smart about it. He said, well, I want you to go, because, you know, I was hesitant and I expressed that to him. And he said, well, well, I want you to go to some of these communities that are really directly affected by this pollution. And, and I did that. So I went to Missouri and spent several days on the ground with um, rural people that were really affected by large concentrated hog operations. And then I went to North Carolina, spent time with Rick Dove, who worked for Waterkeeper, a retired Marine Colonel, who was an amazing and is remains an amazing um, environmental advocate down in North Carolina. And I had so I had the opportunity to be with people on the ground that were in these communities where there were big um, concentrated livestock or chicken or turkey operations. And I got, I, then I got very enthusiastic about this idea of doing this work because I realized that, you know, this, there'd been this radical transformation in terms of the way livestock are raised for food. And it was causing tremendous problems for people, for animals, for water quality, and there wasn't really anything being done about it. So that was the work that I then did for the waterkeeper for the next two years. Wonderful. So let's uh, talk about your book. Uh, yeah. Let's start out with why do you believe cattle are essential in the world's food system? I know that's a big question, but. Yeah, well, you know, as we we're just talking about, I sort of came at the whole issue of meat and meat production from a kind of a classic environmental lens. I was thinking that basically meat is resource intensive and polluting and therefore something should be minimized or maybe even eliminated eventually, right, in the human diet and in farming systems. But what started happening was during those years that I worked for Bobby Kennedy Jr. at Waterkeeper, I also spent, a, I spent a lot of time on agricultural operations of all sorts. So I, I saw a lot of these industrial operations. I was inside of many of them. I was outside of many more of them. But then I was also visiting some really, really good farms where they were doing a really good job with land stewardship, with taking care of the animals really well, with protecting water resources, with, um, they were essentially, they were um, assets to their local community rather than being liabilities for their communities. And it was just such a difference. There was a dramatic contrast. And so I actually, during the years I was at Waterkeeper, I advocated to my colleagues and, and Bobby Kennedy, and we all agreed on this, that we wanted to make a, a very clear distinction between different types of meat production and argue in favor of certain types and against other types, rather than just, you know, meat is bad. That, that was never the approach that we took. And during that time, I began to really learn from observation and talking to people and reading a lot of research 
about the importance of grazing animals because they have sort of a variety of different uh, ecological impacts that are actually essential for ecosystem function. And the way I've come to think about this over the years, after I left the waterkeeper job, I ended up marrying uh, Bill Nyman and moving you know, who's a founder of the Nyman Ranch Network of Farmers and Ranchers. And so I moved from New York to California and began living on a ranch. And so I saw this firsthand as well as researching it and studying it. But I began to understand that, uh, you know, the earth had large herds of grazing animals for millions of years, starting, you know, about 60 million years ago, there began to be grasses evolving and grassy areas, and there began to be ruminant animals uh, on those grassy areas. And the earth basically evolved for tens of millions of years with that pattern of large herds. And we have today just remnants of those large herds. So we have the caribou in the Arctic and we have wildebeest and Cape Buffalo in parts of Africa. Uh, but we don't, and there's still, you know, a few bison in the upper Midwest and the Great Plains and so forth. But, um, but we don't really think about the earth as having these huge grazing herds the way it once did. But it did have that for the vast majority of the time that there have been, you know, mammals on the earth. And so um, what I've now come to believe is you need these grazing animals to make proper uh, sort of models of ecosystems in your food systems. And so rather than cattle being a, a sort of a negative, inherently negative part of the food system, when they're managed correctly in the right ways and in the right places and in the right numbers, they can actually be very environmentally beneficial. So my whole focus has really shifted to making the case for well-raised animal. Right. Um, you know, animals in the food system and as part of the diet. And because of course, I've also spent a lot of time looking at the nutritional side and the health questions and become more and more convinced that the food that we get from animals are extremely important to the human diet. So okay, um, I want to go back a little bit to um, the grazing animals. Uh, a lot of people think that there's insufficient land to do this. Is yeah. it really feasible? Yeah, that's, that is absolutely probably the number one question people come up with. And I would just say, first of all, I've had that, I've discussed this with a lot of people who have real expertise in terms of, you know, land, agricultural land use around the world and how it's being used and how it can be used and so forth. And I've read a bunch of reports over the years on this topic. And essentially, there are a couple of key points. First of all, there really isn't a shortage of grazing lands. There's there's quite a bit available that isn't even being utilized at this time. And, but more importantly, when you um, manage the animals well, you actually reduce the amount of land that you need. So uh, the Savory Institute, which is based in Colorado, but it works around the world, has looked at this and has shown over and over again around the world that where you have well-managed grazing, you produce a lot more food per acre, basically. And so you shift the practices and you have a much greater um, output, not just, um, not just for the, you know, the, the food chain, but also the whole ecological chain is much more productive. It's about, you know, it's a, a much more life filled system. And so you have a lot more of everything, more vegetation, more insect life, more, you know, more animals of all kinds. And so it, 
it's a really different kind of um, thinking about it. And they've actually, they actually did an analysis in the, for the United States, and they did an analysis where they found that if you looked at all the available land that could be used for grazing, so if you, um, you know, got rid of feedlots, and you, you, you put all the animals on grass, basically, all the grazing animals, and you got rid of feedlots, and you got rid of the cornfields that were needed to, you know, feed the animals in the feedlots and so forth, they found that you'd have far more than enough land to to raise all of the cattle that are currently raised. So I, I think this is actually just kind of a red herring. There, there really isn't a shortage of land to produce the amount of food that we need. Yeah, well, that's great. You explained that really well. So let's now talk about the role of methane, which a lot of people are concerned about, which are emitted from cattle and considered very serious for greenhouse gas. Yeah. Well, I, what I did, um, the, the defending beef book that I just came out with is a completely revised and expanded edition. And I put a lot of new research into it, but I also added sections that I thought really needed, um, you know, more discussion and more explanation. And I had, um, methane covered in the original book, but I did a lot more on it for this book because there's so much interest in the topic. And basically it's hard to, um, put it in a nutshell, but I'm going to try here. (laughs) Basically, it's really an issue that has been dramatically oversimplified in the public conversation to the point where people think, oh, because of methane, we shouldn't eat beef. But in reality, there is, uh, first of all, the type of methane that is emitted in agricultural systems, especially from cattle, is biogenic methane. So it's methane that comes from natural cycles. And all of the methane that comes from cattle's digestive systems, and there, there is, in fact, I mean, that's, you know, that's the part of it that's true. There is methane that comes from cattle digestive processes, but it's all methane that is caused by their um, digesting of naturally occurring vegetation or, you know, cellulosic vegetation that occurs. So when they are breaking down, uh, you know, the grasses basically that they're eating, that releases methane. This is all methane that comes from the vegetation. The carbon in the methane comes from the vegetation that they were eating. So this is um, basically cycling carbon that was already part of the natural cycle of growth and decay and regrowth, which is a natural cycle that continuously happens. So this is sort of referred to as old carbon versus the methane that comes from um, or any kind of CO2 or methane that comes from fossil fuel production, which is basically new carbon to the atmosphere and to the environment because it's all deeply sequestered away, you know, whether you're talking about coal or natural gas or oil. And then when you extract that for um, fossil fuel production, that releases a new source of carbon to the environment. So there's actually a lot of discussion right now in the scientific community about how these things should be treated differently. And methane actually the whole accounting system for methane has been really wrong because they wanted to do an equivalence. You know, you had the CO2 equivalent that you have for nitrous oxide and for methane. And there's, this has been going on for a long time in public policy circles, but it's scientifically totally inaccurate. So the, um, physicist Miles Allen at Oxford University, who's a specialist on methane, has made this whole argument to the international community that they need to have a different way of accounting for methane, especially biogenic methane. And actually his argument has just been accepted by the um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. 
and they're shifting how they're calculating methane and its impact. And when you use this more accurate accounting system, uh, it shows that there's much less of an impact um, from cattle. In fact, if you have a stable cattle herd, there's no impact at all because you're simply replacing um, the historic load that was already there from the methane, you know, from the cattle that were there before and for the ruminants that were there before them. So um, there's a lot to there's a lot to the methane issue. Um, that's kind of a brief summary of some of the problems with the way it's currently being talked about. But bottom line is that when you have healthy ecosystems, like I was talking about before and try to make food systems like healthy ecosystems, the methane is um, consumed by um, uh, soil dwelling organisms. Uh, there is less of it emitted when you have good grazing systems. And there's actually really good research in the agricultural community as well on um, putting you know, seaweed into feed and so forth to dra dramatically reduce methane emissions. So I just think that the whole issue has been dramatically exaggerated, gre greatly over-exaggerated. And in fact, I was really pleased to see that the White House's statement on methane a couple of weeks ago um, really focuses on the fossil fuel emissions because that is exactly where the emphasis should be. This is really um, something that has been pushed by people that are opposed to meat, you know, yeah, the focus yeah. on cattle. And, and it's kind of gotten, you know, people get kind of carried away <laughs> with these overly simplistic ideas like, oh, we need to address methane, so let's reduce cattle numbers. It really isn't. Um, first of all, necessary or a good idea if you're trying to create healthy food systems. And um, I think that there's, thankfully, there are beginning to be conversations and recognition of that within the scientific and public policy community. That being said, there's still a lot of talk about taxing meat and all that stuff, you know, which needs to be argued against because yeah. it's a, a really ridiculous approach. Well, what about the methane emitted from feedlots, CAFOs? Is, is, is that different? I mean, can you speak about that? Yeah, well, one thing that I discovered when I was doing the research for the first uh, edition of Defending Beef was that the entire uh, way the animals are raised for food um, new sources of methane were actually created when they created these industrial kinds of systems. So um, in pig farming in particular, they began taking and liquefying the manure. This is also done in um, some dairy operations. And that actually creates a source of methane that wouldn't have existed in a classic system where you just have, you know, the animals on a, on a pasture and you have, you know, them grazed and rotated and so forth. So some sources of methane within the farming system are new sources that are just, um, you know, a result of industrialized systems. And for me, that's one more reason we shouldn't have that kind of uh, livestock production. Okay, thanks for clearing that up. So it's often said that beef is simply too water intensive in this drying world. How do you respond to that charge? Yeah, well, that's something that, you know, I started kind of focusing on water um, actually at National Wildlife Federation before I came to Waterkeeper. And then, of course, at Waterkeeper Alliance, my work really was focused on water protection. And so it's something I've done a lot of work on and for, um, you know, for all of my writings and for uh, these 
defending beef books, I really looked into it deeply. And again, I found there was a lot of misunderstanding around the whole water question. So most importantly, when you're talking about cattle, if you look at the way they're raised the world over, the majority of cattle are spending all or most of their lives on grass. And when you look at how, um, you know, how they get their water in their life cycle and how much they consume, over 90% of the uh, that the water that they consume, in fact, it's like something like 97%, it's almost 100%, is from the vegetation, okay? And so when you have these sort of classic ways that, you know, advocates that are against meat, again, uh, you know, I don't, I don't like to sound paranoid here, but this is actually true. Um, this is how they do this. They look at all of the water that's consumed by the animal, including every drop of water that's contained in a blade of grass, and that's how they create the number. So that makes it look as though beef is an, an extremely water-intensive product. Um, several, so I've looked at a ton of different analyses about water consumption by you know, beef cattle and how much is used in all of the production. And I found the only really scientific, really credible analysis on this was done by UC Davis here in California, who um, you know, obviously has a lot of expertise in agriculture. And the people who did this were people who really understand agriculture. And they did an analysis that did not include the water that was in the grass. And there are really good reasons why you shouldn't include that, but I won't, you know, I won't get into the nitty gritty here, but there, but they, they simply looked at how much is consumed in other parts of the beef production system and, and how much would be used in irrigation in anything that they might be consuming and how much the, the animal actually drinks. Okay. Now, when you look at it that way, you're only looking at a pretty small amount of water comparatively. And it turns out that if you don't include the, the water that's in the grass, um, that, you know, it's just natural rainfall water, uh, you actually end up with a pound of beef and a pound of rice taking about the same amount of water. And so that's not to say, you know, there's no water involved in beef production. Obviously, um, rice and many other crops do require water and so does beef, but it's not an outlier, you know, when you compare it to other foods. And there are lots of foods that are in a typical American kitchen that are comparably water intensive compared to beef. So I think, again, there's kind of a um, a disconnect in terms of the facts and um, the reality on the ground. And there are people who've been wanting to argue against, you know, cattle and against beef for a long time, and they're glomming on to all these different ideas. And the water usage one is one of those points. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to get into talking about some of the fake meat in a few minutes. And, uh, we're definitely on the same page with that issue, but, and that is a good example of uh, using the environmental issues and climate change to, to sell their fake meat. So I'm a big proponent of organic regenerative farming. And can you tell us how cattle plays an important role in this type of farming? 
Yeah. And I have to say, it's interesting because when I started the research for the original Defending Beef book, I didn't understand how much soil is right at the heart of the whole story. And this was something I really learned a lot more about as I did the research. So basically, it kind of goes back to that idea I was talking about earlier that the earth evolved with large populations of grazing animals, sort of heavy, you know, like in California, for example, there were these they they believe as many as 18 mega fauna. So these large animals, there were two types of uh, early uh, elephants. There were, there was a tiger in California. There was a camel in California. These are all the prehistoric animals that were here. So there were these big animals that had a big impact on, you know, the, what the landscape looked like. And then there were these predators that kind of kept these animals together, kept them bunched, kept them moving you know, and obviously kept their populations in check. So this is how huge portions of the earth evolved, including large portions of California. And what the reason, I think this is key to understanding why these grazing animals are so important, because it turns out that when they're there, you know, when you have the presence of large grazing animals, you have various different kinds of animal impact that are actually kind of essential for that whole ecosystem functioning proper, properly. And it really starts at the soil level. So the hooves of the animal actually help to sort of break up the soil a little bit, which helps water to percolate and for seeds to germinate. And it actually helps the soil by pressing vegetation into the soil, which helps feed the soil. When they're uh, grazing, their mouths actually help sort of clip and prune the vegetation. So it removes a lot of dead uh, vegetation and it also allows the sunlight to penetrate down to the soil level better so that you get much more diversity of different species because later uh, later sprouting species will still be able to come up. And then you have um, the impact of the, the, the manure and the urine, which adds hydration and adds lots of different types of nutrients. And of course, the beneficial bacteria that are contained in the manure. And all of this, these various different kinds of impacts, which are, you know, kind of collectively, I call them the animal impacts, are things that kind of supercharge the biology of the soil. And so what has been shown all around the world in lots of different kinds of settings is that where you have grazing animals, you have a lot more life in the soils and everything from earthworms to, you know, the microscopic life, which breaks down into lots of different categories. You know, there are, um, bacteria and fungi and all kinds of things on the microscopic level. And all of this stuff adds up to this sort of subterranean environment that is much more active and much more healthy and much more diverse where you have grazing. And this has just been shown over and over again around the world. And so what that leads to is it leads to more vegetative growth, more diversity of vegetation, more insect life, more diversity of insect life, and then on up the, you know, sort of up the ecosystem, you know, chain. I kind of think of it as an upward cascade of life that gets kind of triggered from this healthier soil. So it, it kind of flips the whole idea on its head that, you know, um, grazing animals are bad for, you know, the environment because it turns out that when you really understand their impacts, uh, it's, there are sort of countless 
positive effects. And also I should mention that healthier soil that has a lot more life and more diversity in it um, also holds a lot more water. So that's a really important part of why grazing animals are so important around the world, even in areas of drought. You know, sometimes you get, in fact, I've just heard in the last few months, people talking about California shouldn't have grazing cattle and so forth because of the drought. Well, well-managed grazing animals actually dramatically help in drought situations because they not only lead to more vegetative growth and uh, diversity of vegetation. So you have a, um, a protective blanket over the soils, which keeps everything cooler in the whole system, but you keep the water in that system in a much better way. And so it's not as dry and brittle. So when you really dig into it, the grazing animals are extremely important. Yeah, you explained that really well. And um, I am a nutritionist and I know there's so much evidence that healthy soil equals healthy food equals yes. healthy gut. <laughs> exactly. Yep, exactly. So Those connections are, you know, finally starting to be made, which is really exciting, actually. Yeah, it really is. And so since we're, we're talking about food, let's talk about some of that uh, fake meat and impossible burger. What's your stance on that? <laughs> yes, I think I know. But... It really is impossible. Yeah. <laughs> because it is impossible to take a food like beef that is just a pure whole food to packed with essential nutrients and to try to replace that with something that you create in a lab. And that's what they're doing. In fact, I remember seeing an interview with the founder, you know, of one of these um, fake meat companies. And he said, well, we're, we're creating something that's as good as meat, only better, you know, because it doesn't have quote unquote fat and quote unquote cholesterol, things that are quote unquote bad for you, according to him. And I just thought, wow, the level of hubris was shocking to me. You know, um, to me, it's just very obvious that food that we have evolved for are things that exist already on the earth, you know, that we have co-evolved with. And um, when I look at the processes that they use and the farming methods that they use to create the ingredients for these, um, it's just processed food. It's not, it's biologically dead. It's full of um, things that we probably shouldn't be eating, you know, things like genetically modified ingredients and right. lots of salts and other flavorants. And it's just lacking in what I think is kind of the fundamental basis of healthy eating, which is just being a real whole food. So so I'm, you know, I, and when I, when I've looked at the ecological analyses on this, there hasn't been as much of an audit on the whole process as I would like to see, but what I've seen of it so far, um, it's not at all to me, there's no persuasive evidence that it's ecologically better. In fact, because they are primarily getting their ingredients from large, you know, monocrop production mm -hmm. to me, it, you know without having dug into the science of it and done the analysis myself, but just knowing what I know about the food system, it looks to me like they're having a worse environmental impact. And I know I don't think it's healthy food. So yeah. to me, it's, it's just, it's a fake solution. It, it is. And the, uh, I think it's called uh, uh, soy hemoglobin, or there's a, there's a longer name for that. But uh, the short term is hemi. And that is the ingredient that gives you the fake blood 
Yeah. Um, that is so highly processed. And I interviewed a gentleman from the Center for Disease Control, and he said that is just like genetic engineering on steroids. Yeah. <laughs> and it's uh, it's horrible. And, you know, I if people don't want to eat meat, there's other alternatives. They could have a black bean burger or right. something like that. But right. that's how I see it too. Exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, but, but going to this lab grown meat is definitely not the answer. And, you know, their claims are just not true. So, but they had to figure some way to try to sell it. Yeah. And you know, what else is interesting about it? It is that there was a huge amount of excitement in, you know, sort of the animal rights and vegan community about this fake meat a few years ago. And now the major players in the industry are the meat companies themselves. They've created their own lines of these meat alternatives and they're buying up the smaller startups. And so it's sort of interesting that the vegans that you thought they were kind of breaking up the, the monopolies of the meat companies are actually now purchasing products from those companies that they once thought were the devil. Yeah, it's marketing. (laughs) Yeah, and it's all just industrial food. You know, it's industrial production methods, it's industrial products. And to me, you're never going to get healthy eating that kind of food. Yeah. You also, the health side of the question that you address in the book, uh, you argue that beef and red meat have been unfairly accused of causing health problems. Can you explain a little bit about this? Yeah. Well, one thing that I learned, again, sort of surprising to me, I thought I sort of knew you know, the story about um, red meat and heart disease being linked and all that. But what I didn't realize is how much there was this backstory, just kind of like with the smoking industry about sugar and how, you know, back in the 1950s, when you know, health, you know, the health scientists around the world, public health officials and doctors were trying to understand why there had been this rise in heart disease and strokes and so forth. And there, there were competing theories out there. And one of them, um, you know, which was the primary proponent of it was Dr. John Yudkin in, in the UK, was that really sugar was a major reason why we were seeing such a dramatic rise in a lot of diet related diseases. Oh, yeah. And then, and then there were, you know, then there was this argument um, that it was actually the fat from animals. And it turns out that you know, that, that idea kind of won the day, the sugar idea kind of dropped away from most of the public discussion. But if you look at the history of it, and this, what, this is what really surprised me in my research was this was a very concerted effort funded by the sugar industry, you know, to discredit Dr. Yudkin and his research and other scientists around the world that were starting to connect sugar with health problems. And there was a deliberate shift of the attention to meat and especially red meat for these same health problems in order to, you know, take the focus away from sugar. So I talk about some of this history in my book, but I also, especially in this, this new edition where I really um, included, you know, the, the research in the last seven years that has come out, there's really been a reevaluation of so much of the, um, the science that seemed to blame uh, red meat for health problems to the point where I would say there is barely any credible science now connecting red meat with health problems. And I think the, um, the most important, uh, 
uh, study, or I'd say one of the most important studies that I cite in the book is, is an analysis that was done by the Harvard School of Public Health, where they looked at thousands of studies around the world that were connecting uh, red meat and health issues. And they found that if they went through and separated out every single study that made the distinction between meat per se and uh, processed meats, that when they did that and they just looked at the studies that that looked only at fresh meats or you know made that distinction, I should say, that there was absolutely no connection at all with any of the major health problems that people have, you know, believed are connected with red meat to the meat itself. They found a small connection for heart disease and other health issues with processed meats, but only that, and it, it was a small one, um, but no connection at all. If you, if you um, just look at uh, fresh meat. So I think it furthers this idea you know, to me, it's just more and more clear that processing of foods of all types is problematic, you know, because there's the processes and the ingredients that are being added are things that we don't, you know, we still don't fully understand in terms of their human health impacts. And so the body of research that we all kind of thought was out there, you know, connecting uh, beef and other red meat to help uh, uh, health problems that that really doesn't exist anymore, in my yeah. view. Well, this kind of begs the question, let's talk about some of the differences when people are buying meat between grass-fed, grass-finished, vegetarian-fed. Sometimes the labels can be really confusing. So can you kind of walk us through that? Yeah, well, this is another thing that, you know, my thinking has shifted on in recent years, and there's been more science on in recent years, in that I am more and more convinced now that there are real tangible health benefits to having animals on grass. So clearly, there's very clear evidence when you're talking about things like meat, like uh, beef and uh, butter, cheese, etc. There's very good solid evidence that that meat and that milk and that butter and cheese, if it was from an animal that was reared entirely on grass, has um, a, a, you know, it has higher levels of lots of different nutrients. Um, things like calcium and vitamin E have been shown to be at higher levels. The fat profile is different, you know, whether you're talking about omega-3 and omega-6s, it's, you know, there's a, a lower uh, percentage of omega-6 fat. Um, and so it is very clearly, uh, there's more and more evidence saying that this is a healthier food to eat, but also, mm -hmm. Um, the non-grazing animals. And this is what I think is really interesting. So for example, um, hens that are on grass, the eggs from those hens have like twice as much vitamin E, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's just all this evidence that's showing that um, those types of um, practices lead, you know, they're more natural systems. It allows the animal to be naturally healthier and their flesh and their eggs and their milk are healthier. And, and I should add too, there's, there's new research in the last several years showing different substances that are present in totally grass fed animals that is not present when you have them in, you know, whether, whatever the species is in a kind of a feedlot or confinement situation. And this is more and more to me convincing 
that, you know, the argument that um, Fred Provenza makes in his book, Nourishment and elsewhere about the importance of sort of having our food be sort of biologically active, you know, and being um, closely connected to sort of natural, its natural state. And it's um, that, that there's, there are tremendous secondary compounds in that food uh, that isn't present at all in processed foods or even in feedlot raised meat and milk. So um, that those substances, there are a variety of different kinds of secondary compounds that are being found in meat and milk that, um, that doesn't exist at all in kind of industrial type produced foods. So it, it's worth the effort, you know, for not just ecological concerns and humane animal treatment concerns, but also just for your own health to pay more and to put the effort into finding food that's raised from animals on grass. Yeah. So when it says grass finished, does yes. it, that pretty much means that it was fed a lot of grain and then they finished it with grass? Is, is that well, correct? you know, all these labels, there's a lot of slipperiness. <laughs> yeah, I know there is. I, I think, That's why you I know, wanted to I talk think, about it. Yeah, I think the best thing that people can do is try to find sources of meat and other foods that, um, you know, where you know about how it was raised. Exactly. So know your if farmer. You, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you can look the person right in the eye and ask the question, that's the best thing. Okay. Yeah. But that's not always true for all the foods we're going to buy. So, you know, I always say, just try to learn about the sources. Mm -hmm. And it's, it seems like a lot of work at first, but mm -hmm. if you just kind of tackle one thing at a time, like I often tell people, start by trying to find a really good source of eggs. Yeah. You can find a person in your community that's raising the hens out on grass, you know, and if maybe you live in a climate where they can't be out on grass all year long, but still they can be out there for a portion of a you know, large portion of the year. And that's going to be much healthier food. That's going to taste better. And you're going to be directly supporting a person in your community that's raising that. And that process, in my view, you know, my own experience, actually, as well as the people I've talked to, that can be kind of a gateway to like, okay, I have found a really good source of eggs. I, I realize now I, this is worth the effort, right? I'm going to try to find a good source of, you know, pork or beef or, you know, other kinds of meat um, and vegetables. I mean, this stuff really applies whatever kinds of foods you're buying to yep. try to yep. just get as much as possible from places where you know the backstory and you know that they're raising it the way you healthy food. Okay. So what's your stance on feeding cattle grain? Well, I, you know, this is another thing where I've kind of like thought about it over the years and learned more and it's, I'm not totally opposed to feeding some grain to some cattle some of the time. You as know, so long as like, they're not GMO grains. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's with everything, you know, we should try to have the animals raised in as similar a fashion as they possibly would be in a natural environment. And so, you know, grazing animals, obviously cattle are domesticated animals. So we've, you know, we've kind of created cattle in a way, according to breeding programs and so forth. But basically they, they, they descend from animals that are meant to be on grass and they do eat some grain though. You know, there's grain out in nature and they will eat the seeds. If you, in fact, it's interesting if you watch cattle grazing in that, in that time of year where there are um, grasses on the seeds they will go right for those grass seeds, you know, and, and we've seen this many times when we watch our own cattle grazing. So it's not that you should never, ever feed any grain, but the grain should be minimized. You know, if mm -hmm. tried to get, um, you know, for any individual consumer, I would say try to find um, food that is from grass as much as possible. You know, that should be the basis. 
And, um, you know, I know some really good farmers in various parts of the country and in the world that feed some grain some of the time. And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with doing that. But as long as the basis of the daily production every day, day upon day is pasture and rangeland, you know, grass, then it's probably yeah. going to be. Well, I live on a ranch, as I mentioned to you earlier, and we raise cooney cooney pigs. <laughs> and I don't know if you're familiar with that breed. No, but, I'm not. But anyway, they're, they're cute, though. <laughs> they, I, I don't know how cute they are. They're cute as piglets, but they're uh, anyway. <laughs> Um, they're, they're pasture raised most of the time, but they are supplemented with some grain, but it's always uh, soy free and corn free and organic grains. So um, yeah. I think that's, you know, about the best you can get. And we also have turkeys and, and chickens and their pasture raised too. So um, I definitely know the difference. And I think more and more people are really understanding in particular about pasture raised eggs, because um, yeah. so many people are, are buying chicken and raising chickens these days right. that they exactly. I, I liked what you said where that's a good place to start but uh and I also agree that you know we need to know our farmers we need to know as much as possible where our fruits and vegetables you know talk to people at the farmer's market if you can and and people are not going to lie to you for the most part if you ask them questions and I always ask questions right me too and, and that's how we learn Exactly. Yeah. So um, I also I want to get into the ethics of the eating animals, because I know that that is a big issue with with many vegans. And yeah. um, so let's talk a little bit about your thoughts about uh, the ethics of eating animals. Well, in Defending Beef, I go through quite a detailed discussion about this because obviously I was a vegetarian myself for over 30 years. So I've thought a lot about, you know, whether to eat animals or not and what arguments come into that. And what I do in the book is I kind of go through all the main arguments that have been, you know, made against uh, eating animals in terms of things like, for example, is it ethical to eat animals because they're quote unquote too resource intensive, you know, and there isn't enough food to feed in the, the people in the world and therefore it's unethical. Okay. Well, what I show in the book, I think pretty clearly is that that's not a credible argument. You know, there really isn't any good evidence at all that by an individual eating meat, they're in any way making somebody else less likely to get food. <laughs> okay. Right. And in fact, as I was saying earlier, I think um, grazing animals are a really important part of biologically healthy and vibrant food systems. So I would kind of argue the reverse. I think we're going to have more and better food systems and healthier food and more abundance if we have well-managed grazing animals as part of the system. So I really don't buy that argument. I think the only argument that really holds up under scrutiny is this question of whether or not a person themselves wants to take the life of another animal in order to feed themselves. And that's something I think people can only answer individually for themselves. But I think the important thing to note is that every food system causes 
the lo- the loss of a lot of life. So, you know, whether you're growing soy or you're growing grains or you're growing potatoes, whatever it is, you know, and this is very obvious to those of us that have spent a lot of time on farms and in farming, um, these things cause loss of life of all different types of organisms. And I actually read a really good book a few years ago, um, The Mindful Carnivore, where he, it's written by a, a man who was a vegan for seven years, I believe. And he began to try to grow his own food. And it was in the process of doing that, that he started really coming to the grips with the fact that, you know, the strawberries that he was buying were from a farmer that would shoot the deer <laughs> that came onto his, um, you know, um, onto their fields. And he was um, having this problem with this um, pest on his own farm that he kept trying to deal with. And he, and he finally realized he needed to shoot that. Uh, uh, I think it was some kind of um, groundhog or something, but it, it, he began to face the reality that even if he was only eating vegetables and fruits and grains, that there was loss of life, whether it was in the plowing of the fields or you know, the harvesting processes, whatever, there was a lot of loss of life involved. So what he started um, trying to do instead was just be, be conscious of, and be thoughtful, be mindful about what he was eating and how it was produced. And he decided not to, um, you know, avoid meat anymore once he started thinking about it that way. And that's kind of what it's been like for me as well, having, um, you know, lived on a ranch for the last 18 years and really gotten very familiar with how we take care of the animals and how even their slaughter is done very carefully. Um, I, I, what I try to do, and I'm not perfect, you know, but in this, in this uh, pursuit, but I try to, um, eat foods of every type that are well raised and raised with respect, you know, respect Uh for the land, respect for the wildlife, respect for the animal that's being reared for food, if that's what we're talking about. And it's a really different um, twist on the ethics. And I actually think to me, that's a much more credible and reasonable approach, especially because as a person, a kid, I grew up spending all my time out in nature. I mean, I was just outside every day for huge chunks of the day. And I always thought of humans as part of that natural world. And it's so clear, you know, having lived here on the ranch for the last 18 years, I see sort of the cycles of life every day of, you know, animals all around me, wild and domesticated that are kind of being, you know, they're being born and they're growing and they're dying in one way or another and their bodies you know, if you're talking about the wild animals, especially they're, they're sort of re-entering into the ecosystem and that's feeding the next generation of, you know, so the soil microorganisms are feeding on that, the body of that animal. And then that's generating the, the plants that are growing there. And that's just how nature works. And to me, the human is part of that system and part of that cycle. And for us to say that, you know, if you don't eat animals, you're somehow being ethical. It doesn't make any sense to me because we're part of that whole system where animals eat other animals and animals eat plants and even plants eat animals. Right. And I'm really glad you brought up humanely raised because that is really important to me. It's just important to know if you can, how the animal was raised and what kind of care they got and, and how they were how they were killed too. Well, and I think more and more people are thinking about that now. And I think yeah. that's good. You know, what I, I, I started working on these issues at Waterkeeper over 20 years ago. And when I would talk to people about my work, very few people that I would encounter 
you know, I was in New York, so especially in New York, where it's like this big city and people are barely out on farms at all. They really weren't thinking about this whole question of how animals were being raised for food no. at all. It just wasn't even on their radar screen. And what I've noticed in the last 20 years, and I think this is a really good thing, is that people are thinking about it now. They're paying attention to it. And there's been this whole elevation of the public conversation about how animals are raised for food. And I'm very glad because that scrutiny was necessary. You know, we had kind of gone down this industrial pathway in this country is how we raise animals for food. And it doesn't produce healthy food. It's not ecologically sound. And it's incredibly inappropriate in terms of how the animals are treated. So I'm very, very happy that this re-examination is taking place. Yes, I totally agree. Well, thank you, Nicolette, for being our guests on Food Integrity Now and sharing all this great information with us. Uh, the book is Defending Beef, and I assume it's available everywhere, Amazon and other places. Yep. And the publisher is Chelsea Green. They have a great website and uh, they have wonderful books of lots of different types. So I love check that out. <laughs> I love Chelsea Green. I, yes, I interview <laughs> a lot of her people that she sends to me because I know it's going to be great books like yours. So thank you again for taking the time to be with us. I highly recommend it and uh, keep up the great work. Thank you. Also wanted to let our listeners know that I am part of a great new show on Children's Health Events TV called The Empower Hour with host Zen Honeycutt, and I am the co-host. And you can catch us at live.childrenshealthdefense.org every Friday at 12 Eastern Time. So check it out, and I think you'll enjoy it. It's all about food and health and wellness and empowerment. And thanks for listening.